Well, as we do read scripture now, we are returning to the book of Isaiah after somewhat of a prolonged absence. This morning we're in Isaiah chapters 47 and 48. However, I'm going to really focus in on just two verses from Isaiah 48, particularly Isaiah 48 verses 9 and 11. So first, Sharon will come up for us and read from Isaiah 48 verses 9 to 13. The, the main thing that you'll hear in those verses is that God saves, he rescues us for his glory, for the sake of his name. And so that's what this message is going to be about this morning. And these other scriptures that read, all these other scriptures that we read are going to point to that same reality that God saves, he rescues for the sake of his name. So then John will come up and read for, for us Ezekiel 36, 20 to 23, which says that same principle very clearly. Then in the New Testament, Joshua will read for us from Romans 9, 16 to 23, which again talk about how God does everything for the sake of his fame, his glory. And then lastly, Don will come up and read for us from Matthew 6, 7 to 9, which is the beginning of the Lord's Prayer and also instructs us to pray for the hallowedness, for the reverence towards God's name. And so just be listening for that theme as we read. The scriptures will be projected up here so you don't have to Open your Bibles. If you do want to open your Bibles, I just encourage you to keep them open to Isaiah 48 um, in preparation for the message. And so, Sharon, if you'd like to come up now. Isaiah 48, 9 through 13. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. I am he. I am the first, and I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. Ezekiel thirty-six twenty to 23 But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name, in that people said of them, These are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go and yet they had to go out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath 
and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known his, the riches of his glory, for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Matthew 6, 7-9. through 9. And when you pray, do not heap up empty, empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Well, as we come to these verses in Isaiah 48 this morning, we are forced to ask a big question, are we not? Why has God saved you? Why does God want to save you? And what difference does it make how we answer this question? Does it even make a difference why God saves us? Or does it only make a difference that we are saved? Or does it also matter why we are saved? Well, over the course of the sermon this morning, I want to argue that it does matter why you are saved and that it matters a great deal. And that when you understand the ultimate grounds for your salvation, it will give you more joy in your life. It will give you more spiritual power in your life than if you were to not answer this question or if you were to answer this question wrongly. So that's where we're going this morning to see why has God saved you and to see how this gives us joy in our lives, how this gives us spiritual power in our lives. So as we look at Isaiah 47 and 48, these two chapters are like two sides of a coin. Isaiah chapter 47 is all about the judgment of Babylon. So why God will judge Babylon, how he will judge Babylon. And then chapter 48 is all about the salvation of Israel. Why God will save Israel, how he will save Israel. You may remember that in the context of this writing, Israel was actually captive in Babylon. So that means that the judgment of Babylon is salvation for Israel. God can't save Israel without judging Babylon, and Babylon can't truly be judged unless Israel goes free. And so again, these two chapters are like two sides of one coin. Judgment for one, salvation for the other. And just if you want to personalize this for your own life, consider that this relationship between Babylon and Israel is akin to the relationship in our own hearts of the flesh and the spirit. In order for our spirits to thrive, to live, our flesh must die. And if our flesh is going to die, then our spirit must come alive. And so the work of judgment and salvation that God was doing for Babylon and for Israel is the same sort of work of judgment and salvation that he is doing in each one of our lives, putting the flesh to death killing it so that by the Spirit we may come alive. And yet, in God's great determination to save Israel and in God's great determination to save us, God had an enormous hurdle. The problem for Israel and the problem for us is that we are wicked. Israel was wicked. God wanted to judge Babylon and save Israel, but the problem was that Israel was just as bad as Babylon. So why should God save Israel when Israel is just as bad as Babylon? We can see this in Isaiah 48, 48 starting in verse 1. It says, Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel and who came from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel, and then this last line, but not in truth or right. 
And then jump down to verse 3. The former things I declared of old. They went out from my mouth and I announced them. And then suddenly I did them and they came to pass. Because I know that you are obstinate. Your neck is an iron sinew and your forehead brass. Those are just metaphors to saying you don't listen. You do whatever you want and you don't listen to me. He says, I declared them to you from of old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you, lest you should say, my idol did them. My carved image and my metal image commanded them. So God is saying to his people, you are idolaters. You do not serve me faithfully. You do whatever you want to do. You're no different than Babylon is. Babylon is this nation of idolaters that I want to judge. You also are a nation of idolaters. And yet, again, the message of 47 and 48 is that God is going to save Israel. He's going to rescue them. He's going to be good to them. And so we must ask this question. What justification could God have for saving Israel and judging Babylon? Right? If both of them are equally wicked, if both of them are sinners, why is God good to one and why is he evil to another? Well, just the simple facts of this case tell us that God does not do it for justice. Right? It's not like Israel was wronged and now God is trying to correct the wrong. Right? That's why God saves Israel. No, if God were concerned about justice, he would destroy both Babylon and Israel. Right? God does not just help those who help themselves. Right? He doesn't save us because we were somehow good people and so he's trying to vindicate our goodness. You know, make sure that the world sees how good we are. No. We are evil people and his salvation is actually contrary to his justice. So, It's not for justice that God saves Israel. Well, some people thinking creatively, so, well, maybe God just does this for fun. You know, maybe God got really bored, you know, being out in heaven for all eternity, and then he sees Babylon and Israel, and he thinks, oh, this looks fun, this looks interesting, let me see what I can do to help one side of this. But again, this idea doesn't hold up to the facts. God has been faithful to Israel for generation after generation, for over a thousand years at this point. God has been faithful to Israel. He's not just having fun. He's not just playing around. He's not a bored God looking for things to do. Well, maybe it's because God feels really sorry for Israel, and he just can't stand to see human suffering, right? God's just so compassionate. He sees people hurting and he just feels like he has to intervene to do something. But again, here, God does not seem concerned for human suffering as such. Just look at what he promises to do to Babylon. If you go back to chapter 47 and 47, especially verses 3, 9, and 11, God's describing what he's going to do to Babylon. First he says, your nakedness shall be uncovered and your disgrace shall be seen. I will take vengeance and I will spare no one. And then in verse 9, he says, these two things shall come to you in a moment. In one day, the loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure in spite of your many sorceries and the great power of your enchantment. So God is going to take away their children, take away their husbands. And then finally in verse 11 of chapter 47. But evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you, for which you will not be able to atone, and ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. 
So God is promising destruction, ruin, evil to come upon Babylon. So if God were simply concerned about human suffering, he would have a very odd way of addressing it in this chapter, in these verses. God doesn't seem primarily concerned about human suffering. And so if none of these motives fully explain God's actions, then what can explain his actions? What is the answer? Why will God save this sinful people Israel and judge this people Babylon? Well, Isaiah gives us the answer in chapter 48, verses 9 to 11. Now, it's, it's verses like this, it's texts like this that make clear that Isaiah truly is this prophet of God's glory. Right? If in the Pentateuch and the historical books we get these stories about God, God's actions in history, when we come here to the book of Isaiah, it's like we find ourselves on top of the mountain looking over all of this history, answering the really big questions. Answering why has God done this? What is near to the heart of God? Who is God most truly? And so Isaiah gives us this answer in Isaiah 48, 9 He says, For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. So there's our answer. God will save Israel and punish Babylon for his namesake. Verse 9, for the sake of his praise. Verse 9, for his own sake. Verse 11, two times, so that his name won't be profaned. Verse 11, so that his glory is not given to another. Verse 11, that's five different ways of saying the same thing. That God is working out salvation for his people for the sake of his glory. And so I want to spend the rest of this message now looking at this motivation of God. But first I want us to make sure we understand how it works. How is it that God's salvation actually works for his glory? What does God mean when he says that he wants to save Israel or more modestly not destroy Israel for the sake of his name and his glory? Well, to answer this question, I actually want to go to another example from the Bible. This example is from the book of Numbers. There, God has just saved Israel from Egypt, and he's brought them out of Egypt, and they're now in the wilderness, and he's shown them the promised land, and he's saying, I'm going to take you into the promised land. And yet the people are unwilling to go into the promised land because they think that the people that are there are too scary for them. So even though they've just seen God destroy the mightiest army on the face of the earth. They've just seen God destroy the Egyptians. For whatever reason, they feel like they still can't trust God to save them from these Canaanites who they're now supposed to go in and battle. And hear how God responds to their fear. So this is Numbers 14, beginning in verse 11. 
It says, And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with a pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. So you see, this is a similar situation to Isaiah. Is it not the people of Israel are wicked? God is saying, I am going to destroy them because they will not trust me, because they will not believe in me. He's saying, I'm going to wipe them out, and then with you, Moses, I'm going to make a better people than this people that I'm about to destroy. Well, now listen to how Moses reasons with God in light of this statement that God makes to him. So back to Numbers 14, now in verse 13. It says, But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people, for you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say, It is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give them that he has killed them in the wilderness. Do you see how Moses is reasoning with the Lord there? Moses is saying that, Lord, the nations have heard of you and the nations have heard that your name is tied to this people. And so now, if this people is destroyed, if you kill them all in the wilderness, what will the nations think of you? They'll think that you're a weak God, that you cannot save your people, that you cannot actually bring them into the promised land. In other words, he's saying, you won't be famous, you won't be great, people won't want to worship you. They will think that you are a weak and powerless God. Moses is arguing with God on the basis of God's fame, on the basis of God's glory, saying, God, don't you want to be glorious among the nations? Don't you want your name to be famous among the nations? Your name won't be famous if you kill your people. Your name will only be famous if you bring this people into the promised land because everybody knows that this is your people. And so when God says that he wants to save his people Israel for the sake of his glory, this is what he means. He understands that his name is tied to the welfare of his people. And if he cannot save his people, if he cannot rescue his people, the biggest problem with that in his mind is that it destroys the fame of his name. It makes him look bad. And God does not want to look bad. He wants to be thought of as great and powerful. Beloved, there is good news for us here. Have you ever considered that in your own salvation God puts his very name at stake upon you? That when God places the title Christian upon you, that suddenly he's saying, I want Christ, I want my son to be identified with you, such that whatever you do, that the nations around you, your neighbors, the people you know, will think like, oh, this must be what God is like. God stakes his name upon you. And because God stakes his name upon you, God will work for you. He will work for your transformation. He will work for your good because he wants to be honored among all peoples. 
And so, beloved, if you have the title of Christian, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ for your salvation, then God is working on your behalf, not just because he loves you and cares about you, but because he wants his name to be great. And he wants his name to be great in you. Nevertheless, I'm sure that this idea of God's working for his own glory, of God wanting to look good, may not sound very appealing at first, does it? If I were to tell my wife that, you know what, I want to love you so well that everybody will think that I'm a really great husband, you know? I I want to be the best husband out there so that everyone will praise me and acknowledge just what a great husband I am. Now, my wife, she may appreciate the effort that I would then put into being a good husband, but at the same time, it would feel insincere, would it not? It would feel like I'm somehow using her to make my own name great, that I'm not being a good husband because I love her, but I'm being a good husband because I want everyone to praise me. I want everybody to think that I'm really great. And so we have this enormous question when we come to this text in Isaiah 48 of, is God really just a self-serving God? Is he insincere in his love for us, that he's actually just trying to get his own fame announced? Or is God genuinely loving toward us? Is he genuinely a giving and serving God? Or is he a God who is really just, again, accruing fame for himself and just using other people to that end? Well, my answer to that question is a firm no. And I want to give you three reasons why, and this will be pretty much the remainder of our message this morning. Three reasons why God is not a self-serving God, even as he saves and he judges for the sake of his name. And my hope is that in diving into these three reasons, you'll come to an even deeper and more powerful recognition of just how beautiful the heart of God really is. I truly do believe that when we see God for who he is, we will love him as we ought. And so my prayer is to display something of the character of God for you here in such a way that you won't want to turn away from God saying, Lord, you you seem really self-serving in this, but instead you will want to turn toward God and say, God, I want to know you. I want to love you because you are beautiful beyond anything else I have ever seen. And so let's look at how we see that God truly is a giving God and a loving God and not a self-serving God, even though he does all things for the sake of his praise and for the sake of of his name. So the first reason why God is not self-serving is also the simplest and most straightforward argument that I think we all are already very aware of. Is that even though God is working salvation for the sake of his name, this salvation came at the cost of his own beloved son. God killed his son so that we could be saved. And my question is simply, how could you ever call someone self-serving if they sacrifice so greatly for your sake? Beloved, we cannot call God self-serving if he would win our salvation at the sake of his own son. John 3.16 may be a very familiar verse, but 
I don't know if you've ever paused to consider just how powerfully it portrays the gift that God gave us in giving us Jesus Christ. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Beloved, he gave his only Son. The Greek word there is monogenes. Older translations will say only begotten son. The point is that Jesus Christ was the only son of the Father. He was the Father's most beloved, most treasured possession. The word monogenes, or only begotten, is supposed to transport us to another place in the Bible. It's supposed to transport us to the story of Abraham sacrificing his son Isaac. Now, you may be very familiar with the story. Abraham had become a very old man, waiting on God to fulfill this promise of making him a father of many nations. And yet, even when Abraham was an old man and his wife Sarah was too old to have children, they still did not have even one child. They had waited all their lives. They were over 90 years old, and they still did not have a child. And yet, suddenly, Sarah, Abraham's wife, got pregnant with Isaac. Now, I'm, I'm very thankful that my wife and I never struggled with infertility, but I know through the reports of many other people that it is a difficult and agonizing thing to battle infertility, to not be able to have a child. And just imagine Abraham and Sarah, over 90 years old, a promise of a child for so many years, never able to have one. And all of a sudden, pregnant with Isaac. They must have been so overjoyed. They probably almost lost faith that God would ever fulfill his promise. But finally, God comes through and they have a son. But then, there's this huge turn in the story. When Isaac was still just a young man, we get one of the strangest stories in the whole Bible. God speaks to Abraham and God tells Abraham that he wants him to go and offer Isaac as a burnt offering. He wants him to go and kill his son, burn him up as an offering to God. What could this possibly mean and how could Abraham possibly do this? This son, this only beloved son that he had waited his entire life for, go and burn him on the altar? Well, Abraham was a man who was so full of faith in God that he knew God would not do him wrong. And so he said, Lord, even though I hate it, I am going to go and do it. And when God gives Abraham this command in Genesis 22, verse 2, listen to the words that God gives in this command. He says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, Whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Again, notice those words, three phrases right in a row. Your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. In the Hebrew, it's three short phrases. Et benecha, et yehadha. Asher ahavta. 
Literally, your son, your only, your beloved. This is the son that God commanded him to offer on the altar. God goes deeper and deeper in describing the value of Isaac to Abraham. From your son to your only to your beloved. In a way, these three short phrases must have been like daggers in Abraham's heart as God was calling him to give his only son, to give that one up on the altar to kill him and to burn him. But again, these words from the Hebrew Bible are so provocative. It is the very first use of the word love in the Hebrew Bible. We can't help but think of this story, your son, your only. When we come to John 3.16 and read that Jesus is monogenes, the only son of the father. Or John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Beloved, when God gave up his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross for you and for me. It was not a small and a light thing that he did. It was like Abraham giving up his one and only beloved son, Isaac, on the altar. And yes, God knew that he would get back his son by resurrection, but getting back your son by resurrection does not decrease the pain of killing your son in the first place. And so, beloved, God is not self-serving in our salvation. He was willing to break his own heart in order to forgive you of your sins, forgive me of my sins, in order that we might be saved from his wrath. This is not a self-serving God, beloved. This is a God who would give his most treasured possession for you and for me. So that's the first reason why I say no, that God is not a self-serving God, even though he is seeking his praise. The second reason why God is not a self-serving God to work for the end of his praise is related to this first one. If the first reason why God is not self-serving is because he gave his son, the second reason why God is not self-serving is precisely because he has a son. Because God the Father is actually working for the praise of His Son. And the Son is actually working for the praise of the Father. Beloved, one of the beautiful truths that is made possible by the doctrine of the Trinity is that God is never, even when when drawing attention to Himself, never is He actually self-seeking. That the Father, when he commends praise, he commends praise toward the Son. And the Son, when he commends reverence and awe, he commends that toward the Father. And the Spirit, when he speaks the word of God to our hearts, he is speaking the words of the Son. You see, the Father, Son, and Spirit, none of them are saying, look at me, look at how great I am. No, they all are saying, Look at the other. 
The son is saying, look at my father. Look at how great my father is. The father is saying, look at my son. Look at how wonderful my son is. And the spirit is declaring of both. Look at how magnificent they are. So even in this seeming self-centeredness of God, there is in reality a much deeper other-centeredness. Now to be sure, God is one. And there is no ultimate division between the Father, Son, and Spirit. But nevertheless, when Scripture speaks about the praise of God, Scripture gives it a Trinitarian shape. So consider this from Colossians 1. This is Colossians 1, verses 15 to 18. It says, He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So do you hear that? All things were created for Jesus, for the Son. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That the Son might be preeminent, beloved. God worked the plan of redemption, the plan of salvation, so that Jesus could be set up above all and over all. Or consider Philippians 2, verses 8 to 10. It says, And being found in human form, he, that is Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. That's God the Father. God has highly exalted the Son, Jesus Christ, and bestowed upon him. So God the Father bestowed upon Jesus the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So beloved, this is what God the Father has done. He's saying, look at my son. Look at that he is Lord. That he is glorious. That he is good. But then the very last phrase of Philippians 2.11 says, To the glory of God the Father. And so Jesus himself in all of his work of salvation says, I am doing all of this for the glory of the Father. So as God is saying, look at me and praise me and see that I am the greatest God in all of existence, he is actually saying, look at my son and how great he is. And the son is saying, look at my father and how majestic and powerful he is. I know I haven't mention the Spirit yet, and I don't have a time to give a full lesson on the Trinity, but just consider this one verse from John 16, 13 to 15. It says, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. He, that is the Spirit, will glorify me. That is Jesus. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said, the Spirit will take what is mine and declare it to you. So the Spirit also is working to glorify the Son. Beloved, the 
beautiful reality of God himself, even in himself, even apart from creation, is that within God himself, there is this glorious display of love and otherness from all eternity past. There was not a time only after creation came into existence when God said, ah, now I finally have a way to display my love. No, beloved, from all eternity, the Father was delighting in the Son. The Son was delighting in the Father. And the Spirit was working to glorify both of them. And so, beloved, God is not self-seeking because He is always seeking the glory of the other person within the triune Godhead and not simply seeking His own good. So that's the second reason why God is not self-seeking. The third and final reason why I reject the proposition that God is somehow self-serving and working all things to the praise of his own glory is because the, the greatness of God, the brightness of his being, his beauty, his luminosity, whatever you want to call the glory of God, how magnificent he is, that thing is our greatest joy, beloved. The human heart was created for glory. We were created to admire something, to revere something greater than ourselves. And you can simply look at our culture today to see the people whose lives are stuck in, stuck in trivial and mundane things. They are not people that are full of joy and passion and energy. The people whose eyes are lifted up to great and glorious things, they are the ones that are full of joy and passion and making a difference on the earth. And so God, when he is working all things to magnify his own glory, he is actually working for your greatest joy, for my greatest joy. At the beginning, I I gave the analogy of me wanting to love my wife and be the best husband so that everyone could be amazed at how great I am. The one really big problem with this example is that no one actually experiences any kind of deep soul satisfaction by knowing the greatness of Rob Ivy, right? People could think I'm really great and they could really admire me, but ultimately, that just turns me into an idol. And it destroys both me and whoever would look at me in that way. Therefore, the only thing I or any other human being can ever promise anyone else is just misery. We can never say of ourselves, look at me and be satisfied. But beloved, God is big enough to fill your soul. He is big enough to satisfy every nook and cranny of every desire that you have ever had. That's a large part of what we mean when we say that God is a God of glory. It means that he is so magnificent that he is the ultimate fulfillment of every desire of the human heart. Therefore, it is actually good news. It is for your good that God does everything for the sake of his own glory. As Isaiah 48, 11 says, that God does not give his glory to another. Beloved, could you imagine how devastated we as human beings would be if God actually gave his glory to something else? 
It would be like destroying the one and only thing that is the ultimate hope of humanity and pouring it into something that could never satisfy us, that could never fulfill us. To use a particularly Pittsburgh example would be like taking the Steelers out of Pittsburgh. Or to use a Marvel analogy, it would be like giving the infinity stones to Thanos, right? It's like the one thing that is most glorious. It's taking it out of the very heart of the thing. The most natural earthly image that I can think of for glory is mountains. I don't think that there's anything else on earth that could be more glorious than a huge snow-capped mountain. Right? Their majesty simply boggles the mind, right? I can even just see a picture of a snow-capped mountain on my computer, and it's like, wow, that is amazing. That's majestic. That's glorious. Well, of all the mountains in the world, it seems to me that Mount Everest is probably the most majestic of all, right? Mount Everest is the most glorious mountain. I mean, after all, it is the tallest. It's the most snow-capped It's the literal pinnacle of mountains, right? When you're on top of Mount Everest, you're taller than any other mountain. Now, what God is doing in working all things for his glory, in saving sinners for his glory, is he is saying that I am Mount Everest, and all that I am doing is to show you how great Mount Everest is and to make Mount Everest taller and taller and more and more glorious so that when you look at Mount Everest, you will be satisfied. And so God works all things to make himself beautiful and glorious and majestic so that when we look to him, we truly can be satisfied. God doesn't want anything else to compete with him because he knows that he is the only satisfaction to our souls. Henry Skugel, a famous Christian author, said, the worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of of its love. The worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. Well, beloved, how great is the object of our love if that love is God? The object of our love is infinite because God himself is assuring it to be so. He will not give his glory to anyone else. He is not making a name for anyone else. He is magnifying himself precisely so that as we come to him in worship and adoration, we find a fountain of eternal joy and life. Again, beloved, the human soul needs greatness. We need an object for our worship. And if we don't find it in God, we will find it in lesser things. And so God saying, I will not give my glory to another. God declaring that he does all things for the sake of his name is like him saying, come to me and be satisfied. See the greatness that your soul truly longs for. God is giving us the possibility as human beings to have worthy and excellent souls, to have every last desire of our hearts fulfilled. And so that's the third reason that I offer to you for why God is not self-seeking in seeking his own glory, because he is actually seeking what is for your good. The primary application I want you to take away from all this is simply to see how great is God. 
that he is both glorious and triune and giving of his only son to work glory and honor for himself. And so, beloved, turn to God to behold his glory and majesty and you will find life for your souls. Whatever sort of unhappiness, whatever sort of trial you're facing now will be changed, will be set in its proper place if you behold God for who he is. And if you're wondering how to do that, I would just encourage you, maybe this afternoon or sometime this week, you can just open your Bible to Revelation chapter 4 and 5. Just read those two chapters and sit there and picture those chapters in your mind and sit there in the presence of the glory of God. God delights to be known, and if you draw near to him, he will draw near to you. So just consider his greatness. And then the secondary application that I want to leave you with is I want you to recognize that your salvation does not depend upon your efforts. Your salvation does not depend upon your goodness. It does not depend upon your talents. It does not depend upon your skill. Indeed, if God is working salvation precisely to glorify His name, How foolish would he be to only choose the smart people, to only choose the good people, to only choose the people who already have it made? If the world were to say, well, he's their God, they would say, well, that God doesn't seem to be able to do much because he can only save the people that are already fixed, that don't have any problems. No, God wants to make a name for himself, beloved, and that's why he chooses the weak things of the world to shame the wise. Why he chooses the foolish to shame the clever. Why he chooses the weak to shame the strong. And so, beloved, if you are here this morning and you are feeling weak, you are feeling like you don't know how to do anything right, you don't know how to make any progress in your life, well then, beloved, take great hope in the God of Israel and in the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because he delights to come to you and make you strong precisely where you are weak. Beloved, my deepest hope and deepest joy when I am so disappointed in myself and when I think, I don't know if there's any way that I can ever change, my deepest hope is to remember that God has set his name over me and if he has done that, he will bring his good purposes to completion. He will transform me. He will make me glorious so that his name itself is glorious. And so, beloved, get over yourself, your own weaknesses, your own concerns about your own performance, and start admiring God. Give glory to God. Give praise to God with your family. Give praise to him among your neighbors. Give praise to him in your workplace. Give praise to him in the church. Praise him in your 313 groups. Praise him all times and in every place. And when you see this God who is so glorious, and praise him as he is, then you will know life for your soul forevermore. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let's now go to God in prayer together, knowing that he is able to work all things for his glory and for our good. And let's look to him with eyes of faith as we pray together now. Heavenly Father, 
we thank you that you have given your only beloved Son, that whosoever believes in you would not perish, but would have eternal life. And God, it is precisely because you've given us your Son that we long to praise you that you would do such a transcendent and glorious work. And so God, I pray right now that in our church, Lord, that you would work in our hearts such admiration for you because of the giving of your Son, such joy in you because of the giving of your Son, that we would not cease to praise you and thank you all of our days. God, would you hear now our prayers of petition to you and hear now our prayers of confession to you.